Well, thank you, worship team and church. You guys sounded great this morning. Cannon, I think, was a little bit worried about Super Bowl Sunday and low attendance right when the service was started. But look, you all came. That's awesome. Filled up, you know, um, awesome. Uh, so this has been a busy week for ministry, a really good week. And we had the women's ministry event, the men's, the men's breakfast, and this is also the weekend of youth uh, winter camp. And uh, we're so excited about that. I just want you guys to all know I've been communicating with Justin, and they are having a great week. They're coming, they are coming back today. But it's just really cool. So their theme was, was uh, times of refreshing from Acts chapter 3. And just the challenges that those high school and junior high students have had are challenges in the area of pursuing personal prayer, pursuing God's word, uh, personal refreshing, and the need to make a personal decision to have a relationship with Christ. And uh, this has just been, just in talking, for all of you parents who sent your kids up, this has been such a profitable weekend. And I would just encourage all of us to be praying for the high school and junior high students that were up there. I mean, what an important time of life. But in a sense, every time of life is an important time of life, right? Uh, this morning, we are going to be looking at 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 23 to 33. And we find in this passage one of the most central verses in the Bible, that we do everything for the glory of God. And uh, it is going to be so good. I love it when we're preaching through the Bible and we run across these really popular verses that we've all heard so many times that we can have a tendency to tune them out. And one of the things I think is so great is when you understand a passage in its context. And so this morning, uh, we are going to be talking about doing everything for the glory of God. Now, I remember as a, as a, as a I don't know, kind of a young believer, I was probably 18 or 19, and there was this preacher that I became aware of, and his name was John Piper. Anybody hear of John Piper? And he was so controversial because he said that we should be Christian hedonists. Do you know what a hedonist is? As a person who just pursues pleasure. Like their, their life is driven by a pursuit of pleasure. And he took that and he said a Christian should be a Christian hedonist. Not an atheistic hedonist, but a Christian hedonist. And you need to pursue the things in life that will bring you the greatest pleasure. And he said the pursuit of pleasure is not wrong. The thing that is wrong is to pursue pleasure in the wrong places. And so he coined this phrase that just said this, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. And the understanding that to pursue um, your own pleasure would be to pursue God above everything else. And that it is our love for God that pleases him, our satisfaction in God that pleases him. And then he used this illustration. Now, I just want you guys to know, when I heard that, I'm like, is this guy a heretic? I mean, that just sounds so weird. I, I had never heard that before. I wasn't sure I agreed, so I read the book he wrote. But this is, was one of his illustrations, was he said this. He said, when you, when you, you know, we a lot of times when we approach our Christianity can feel like, hey, this shouldn't be about me. It should be about others. It should be about God. And if I'm not sacrificing, 
If I'm not making myself do something that somehow that's less pleasing to God, and this is what he said, this was his illustration. If you came up to your wife and it was her birthday and you brought her flowers, and you said, here, I'm, I'm, gonna, I'm giving you flowers, and she said, um, oh man, thank you so much, I really appreciate that, and you said, well, hey, it's my duty, um, I'm doing it because that's what husbands are supposed to do. That's one option. <laughs> For all you ladies out there, would you like that? Okay, what about this? Your husband brings you flowers on your birthday and he gives you flowers and you say, oh, thank you. He says, man, don't thank me. It makes me so happy to give you flowers. Um, is that what you'd rather hear? Better. And you want to know something in a sense, if you are selfishly giving your wife flowers, that the reason I give you flowers is because I can't think of anything that I could spend this money on. I can't think of anything that I could do that would bring me more joy than to give you a gift. Like that, that would be better than going and buying something for myself. It makes me more happy to give this to you because I just love you so much. That's the concept behind Christian hedonism. It's that, um, it's like the Apostle Paul. And one of the things I like is he talked about, um, he quoted C.S. Lewis, some of those same uh, concepts that C.S. Lewis taught. Um, he went through scripture um, and, and just talked about consider it joy when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. When we go through difficult times, we like it because it helps us be more faithful to God. Um, the apostles, when they were being persecuted, and they said, and they left rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer for Jesus. And it's not like they were saying, this is terrible, I hate it, I mean, I'm doing this out of duty. But the fact that when they were persecuted, they rejoiced because it was an opportunity to glorify God. And so this whole thing of that we do everything for God's glory, <laughs> I don't wanna, I'm gonna say, just say this in some ways, Pursuing God's glory is the most selfish thing you could do. And one of the things that I think about is God's goodness. That every single thing that God tells us is for our well-being. When he says, live your life with me on the throne, instead of live your life with yourself on the throne or with somebody else on the throne, live your life with me on the throne. When we obey that, it brings the greatest possible blessing into our lives. And that's how good God is. When God says don't do this, it's not because he's trying to rob you of joy. It's because he's trying to fill your life with joy. And when we approach life like that, when we understand that God loves us and everything he says don't do is bad for us and everything he tells us to do is good for us. Doesn't that change the perspective that we have as we live life? You know, I'll just tell you right now, that realization uh, was the thing that changed that allowed me to become a Christian and it was the thing that changed when I became a Christian. My entire life, I grew up in church, I heard truth, but I decided I cannot be a Christian because to be a Christian means I have to sacrifice happiness and joy today so that I can be 
happy for eternity in heaven. I've got to be miserable in this life so I can be happy in heaven. If I want any sense of happiness in this life, I will be miserable for eternity because pursuing myself, pursuing happiness means I'll be separated from God. And actually, I thought about that as a seventh grader. And I just thought to myself, I know that the choice I am making is a bad choice. I'm pursuing myself, but eternity seems so far away. And I got to get up today and live my life tomorrow. And so I just was, uh, in my own mind, I thought, well, you know, hopefully I get notice in my last day. Because when I'm laying on my deathbed and there's no more joy to be have, had in this life, then I'll commit my life to the Lord for eternity. The problem is we never know when our life's going to be over, right? There's people who wake up and they just fall over dead. Young, healthy people that just get up and one day they die. People who are overweight, they finally lose weight. Their, their life is finally in a good place. And somebody walks into their room and just sees them dead in their desk chair. Uh, people die in car accidents. They die in their sleep. And it's one of the things, you know, often I've thought about even cancer. What a terrible thing that is. But what an incredible gift to know my time's limited. When a doctor says to you, you have two months or you have six months to live, what an incredible gift in the sense of history, in the sense of your life. And by the way, I didn't say that. I've never had cancer. Um, that concept was brought to me by a pastor that I served with who got cancer and who knew he was going to die. And he told me this is the greatest gift. What a wonderful way to leave this earth. That God has given me notice that I have an opportunity to make everything right with my family, to be able to have every conversation that I want to have. What an incredible gift. And, but that whole idea um, of living life either happiness today so we can go to hell later or misery today so that we can go to heaven later, that's actually not the case. Um, coming to Christ means this life will be the best that it could possibly be and an eternity in heaven. Uh, when you don't live for the Lord, when you don't live for God's glory, that means that the more you pursue happiness, the more miserable you will be, the more empty you will be, the more misguided you will be, and then you get to spend eternity separated from God. You know, the offer of salvation. Good things now and good things later. Rejecting Christ, bad things now and worse things later. So this whole idea of glorifying God, I was thinking about 2 Corinthians 5.15 that just says, and Jesus died for all that those who might live may no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. So we're going to glorify God. Now, <laughs> I want to just throw one more thing out. We're going to charge into our passage. Remember Job? Job? Job's life is proof of what I just said. Um, Job was a faithful, righteous man, and God blessed him tremendously. And then Satan shows up and he says to God, hey, um, of course Job, Job loves you. Of course he worships you. You've made everything in his life good. You've put this hedge around him so that I can't hurt him. He only loves you because you're good to him. And God says, 
Okay, actually, no. Uh, Job loves me not because of what I've given him, and we'll prove it. Go take away everything he has. And Satan timed it perfectly so that he destroyed his family, destroyed his riches, he destroyed everything in his life, and Job's standing in a moment, his whole life melts down. And a person walks up and says, this is gone, this is gone, this is gone, this is gone. I mean, there's no more devastating way to hear uh, what Job heard. And then it's interesting too, God left Job's wife, he took everything from him but left him his wife. And what did his wife say in the midst of his misery? Yeah, she says, curse God and die. He left his wife to be, <laughs> to be an additional satanic attack in his life. And then Satan comes to God, and God says, well, what do you think? Job still worships me, still loves me. He loves me more than anything else. In fact, that's what Job said, right? Naked I came into this world, naked I'll leave. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And then uh, Satan says, yeah, but you haven't hurt him physically. I mean, sure, he doesn't care about his stuff, but if you hurt him, then he'll curse you. And so God says to Satan, okay, go ahead, go hurt him. You can't kill him, but go ahead and hurt him. And then after losing every single thing that he had, he has incredible pain, boils from the top of his head to the bottom of his foot, and he's miserable, and he feels like there's God's silence in his life. He's praying, he's saying, God, why? And God seems absent. And then his friends come. We always give Job's friends a hard time. They came and sat with him for a week without saying anything. When was the last time you went to comfort somebody and you just sat there for a week? And so uh, he goes and his friends sit there for a week without talking, and then they start trying to encourage him and they start saying to him, people suffer because they sin. <laughs> and Job's like, yeah, but I didn't do anything wrong. And at the end of the story, um, God comes to talk to Job. And he just says, Job, who are you to question me? Where were you when I made the world? And God just goes on for chapters talking about his own greatness and how Job has no right to question him. And at the very end, Job repents in dust and ashes, and he just says, God, you're right. I talked about things I didn't understand. But the thing about the end of Job is that Job says, before uh, my ears had heard about you, but now I have seen you. See, we look at the book of Job and we think about um, how God blessed him with more kids, how God blessed him with double the riches. We, we look at those things and we think wrongly that that was God making up for what he had taken. It was not. The thing that God did through that whole experience with Job was to give Job more of himself. God is the greatest gift that any of us ever get. And of course, God's good, so he doubled his riches too. But that was a side note. And as we think about life, as you think about your life, as you think about why you live, there is nothing more important than that you live your whole life for the glory of God. And in this passage, that is what Paul emphasizes. That is what Paul communicates. 
And he also talks about how living that way, how it applies to their daily decisions. You know, God does not desire that living for his glory is some thing we just say. Uh, God intends that as we live for God's glory, that that impacts, impacts every conversation, every decision, every choice, what we do for fun, what we do for work, how we have fun, how we work. It's supposed to inform every relationship that we have, God's glory. So, um, shall we read the passage and get in there? So let's consider the first thing, that we are to edify others and not seek our own good. I want to read this passage, and I'm going to point some things out to you as we read it. Um, this passage uh, is, we started last week in 1 Corinthians 10, 14, where Paul just says, flee idolatry. That's when we don't glorify God. So here we're told to glorify God. Last week was don't not glorify God. And because of the significance of communion, because of the example of Israel's um, uh, worship, because that anything other than that is idolatry, and idolatry is worshiping demons, and because of God's discipline, those are all reasons we need to glorify God. But let's look at verse 23. The Apostle Paul says this, all things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. And that's our first point, that our purpose is to build up one another, to edify each other, to encourage, to strengthen. That's our first point, that we are to be helpful and edifying. And, and this is what it says. Our focus needs to be on how we think about other people, which is a reflection of how we think about God. Why are we so concerned about others? Why? because others are made in God's image. Because when you do something to another person, Jesus takes that personally. It's what's so significant about us not sinning against other people, is that when we sin against other people, we are sinning against God. And so we seek the good of others, the well-being of others, and not ourselves, because that is part of worshiping God. And then he says in verse 24, this is the first command, let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. So that's the first command. And then he says, eat whatever is sold in the meat market without raising any questions on the ground of conscience. And here we have a principle, a quote of Psalm 24, for the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. If one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner and you're disposed to go, eat whatever is set before you without raising any questions on the ground of conscience. We're going to talk about a conscience this morning. But if someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then don't eat it for the sake of the one who informed you and for the sake of conscience. I don't mean your conscience, but his. This is another principle here. For why should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience? If I partake with thankfulness, why am I denounced because of that for which I give thanks? So whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. That's our second point. Give no offense. This is our third point. Give no offense to Jews or Greeks or to the church of God. Just as I try to please everyone and everything, I do not seek my own advantage, 
but that of the many that they may be saved. And I just want to make a comment about this. There's three timeless commands. There are two principles that are timeless principles. And then there's a cultural application of that. That's all the stuff about animal, about meat sacrifice to idols. That's all cultural. And that doesn't mean it doesn't matter. If we lived in a culture that was the same, then we should do the exact same thing this says. If I lived in China, then this would be something I would, I would obey on a regular basis. If I lived in a place where there were Jews and where there were people that were sacrificing meat to idols, this is less significant to us, but it still has an application as you go to a Thai food restaurant or an Asian restaurant and where they put food underneath an idol and when they bless the food that they're making. That I know believers who won't eat in a Chinese restaurant for that reason. And so these are, even the cultural things to some degree apply to us, but the bottom line in this whole thing is that there are these timeless things that while you and I aren't buying meat in an idolatrous meat market, we are still people who live our lives for God's glory and are informed by these things. So let's consider this. What does it mean to be helpful and to build up. All things are lawful, not all things are helpful. So helpful tries, helps us understand edifying. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Not all things um, strengthen and encourage. Let no one seek his own, but, but the good of his neighbor. How is it that we seek the good of others? And I was thinking about this. You know, the Apostle Paul is thinking about who he can send to the Philippian church. And uh, you want to know what one of the things that he says is? Timothy's the only guy I have I could send. <laughs> you know, we talked about the Corinthian church, right? And, and Paul's trying to send the gifted, talented Apollos, this amazing speaker. I mean, he had to be like Francis Chan, you know, the thing we watched that the, uh, that the ladies watched. I was in the sound booth, but I wasn't participating. I was just in the sound booth. But the, the, thing, that we, the thing that we watched at the, at the women's thing, man, Francis was such a powerful communicator. That's Apollos. The Corinthians said, uh, Paul, you're boring. You're not a very good speaker. And uh, so maybe Francis is Apollos, and maybe I'm like Paul, I mean, or whatever. But the bottom line is, when Paul's trying to think of somebody to send to this Corinthian church, he tries to send Apollos, and Paul says, Apollos just says, I'm not going there anymore. I won't go. So he sends Timothy. When Paul's going to send Timothy to the Philippian church, this is what he says. This is Philippians 2.3 and uh, Philippians 2.20. He says this, I have no one like him who will genuinely be concerned for your welfare. That's building up. That is encouraging. But where does that concern for the welfare of others come from? Uh, the next verse, verse 21 for they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. When you seek the interests of Christ, you will build others up. When you see a person who is tearing other people down, when you tear other people down, you are not pursuing the interests of Christ, you are pursuing your own interests. And we need to recognize that when we see it in ourselves, we need to recognize it when we see it in others. That to pursue Christ is to build others up. 
Now, how do we do that? We build people up with God's word. I think about Acts 20, 32, where Paul says, I commend to, uh, to you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up. I think about 2 Corinthians, or I'm sorry, 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. All scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. You know, when we get together, we don't just find who's an amazing speaker who can kind of come up with their own stuff. That's not what we want. We're trying to find who can open up God's word, read it to us, and explain it to us. It is not good advice we seek. It is not human wisdom that we speak. It is not like the people with the golden tongue. It's who will read and explain God's word to us because God's word is what builds up. So we build up with God's word and we use our own tongues to build up. I was thinking about Proverbs 12, 18, where it says, there's one whose rash words are like sword thrusts. You ever known anybody like that when they talk to you or when they talk about other people? It's like they're like a sword destroying, attacking, hurting. But the tongue of the wise brings healing. Like, think about this. Um, this is a verse that I have memorized, that I've made my kids memorize. As a youth pastor, I made the kids memorize it. <laughs> We'd be in the van driving. There was this kid uh, over the years that, man, that kid, it didn't matter what came out of his mouth. It was discouraging. It was cutting. It was insulting. And so I'd be in the van, and I would hear this kid say something. And one of the things I love about youth, I'm so thankful our youth are up at camp and they drive up there together and they spend a time together. And it's not because everything is going to go perfect, but it's because while you're there, you shepherd and you train. And so when you take kids to camp and somebody says something real, mean, really mean to someone else, you're glad that happened. You don't want that, but that's awesome because you get to come alongside and you get to say, hey, you said this to that person. What does God say about that? How are you supposed to think about that? And then you go to the person who was hurt by what was said. And you say, oh, okay, so this person hurts you. How do you think about that in the context of Scripture? How should you respond? How should you think about that person? And you coach them, and you help them work that out. <laughs> Can I just tell you guys, the greatest motivation that I had as a youth pastor was hanging out in the church. Because I would look at all these things that were happening amongst adults. I would look at things that happened in the women's ministry, things that happened in the men's ministry. I would think about things in the church with all of the adults. And just look at that stuff and say, this is not who God intends us to be. Um, we have adults that have grown up and they function in this way. You ever heard anybody say, oh, that's teenagers? They'll grow out of that. I mean, kids 12 to, 12 to 19, they become humans again when they're 22. And people have this idea that people grow out of sin. That does not happen. It changes. But I looked around at the junior high group, at the meanness, at the way people talked, the way people thought. And then I looked at the adults in church, and I'm like, well, no wonder they're exactly the same. And so I thought, you know what? I'm going to help this kid not be like this when he's 50. I'm going to help this lady, this young lady, not be like this 
when she's 30. And so we got the youth leaders together and we talked about it and we prayed for these kids and we started teaching them and showing them. And so when this kid would say these mean things in the back of the van, on the way to camp, I made him memorize this verse and I just said, Mike, that was his real name, every time you say something mean, I want you to recite this verse so that you will know how to think and how to apply this in your life. And so here's the weird thing. I made him memorize it, but you wanna know who memorized it? Every single kid in the youth group, because we, were, no matter where we were, he would say it and I would say, all right, Mike, give me Ephesians 4.29. And pretty soon the entire youth group is reciting this verse with this kid. And here's the cool thing. Often we read this verse, but we don't think about where it applies but they were also learning how to evaluate in their life everywhere this verse was supposed to apply. That's what it says. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth, but only such a word is as good for building up as it fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Like our words are reflected, should reflect the fact that we're saved. And let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. <laughs> you want to know? I was helping these kids to function um, in the church when they were adults. You want to know what else I was doing? I was helping them be a husband. I was helping them be a wife. Because these principles and these truths, they touch every part of our life. So we build up with our words. We build up with our gifts. Have you thought about that? God gives gifts to people in the body of Christ to build others up. We're gonna be getting into this in 1 Corinthians 12 through 14. So next week, we talk about one of the most controversial, challenging passages in the Bible. Uh, pastors don't preach through Corinthians because they don't wanna get stuck with the passage that we're gonna preach next week. And then also uh, verse 12 through 14, gifts of the Spirit, speaking in tongues. We're, we're, coming, we're coming to that quick, and there's lots of controversial stuff in there. Here, here's a verse from that section. 1 Corinthians 12, 7 says, to each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. No spiritual gift is for you building yourself up. Not one. Everyone is given so that you can build up the body of Christ. That's why we come to church. So the Lord can bless us through the gifts that he's put around us and so that the Lord can bless others through the gift he's given us. So we do it with God's word. We do it with our words, the way we talk to people, and we do it with the gifts that God's given us. And it goes on, verse 25 and it says, eat whatever is sold in the meat market without raising any questions on the ground of conscience. And uh, so Paul's going to talk about the conscience. Five times in this section, conscience is mentioned. So here's the conscience. Uh, what is a conscience? Do you guys know? So your conscience, this is an interesting thing. Uh, the concept of conscience, uh, we see it in the Old Testament. This Greek word is used one time. And it's used one time in 1 Samuel 25, verse 31, where it's talking uh, about David. 
and, and just, uh, it's just talking about not having a conscience problem after destroying Nabal and his family. So that, that word, that Greek word is used one time there, and it actually translates the Hebrew words for a stumbling heart. So don't, don't do this thing where you have a stumbling heart. Uh, there's another uh, place in the New Testament, or I'm sorry, in the Old Testament, where the word conscience is used in, in some English translations. But a conscience is emphasized often in the New Testament. And so there is that Old Testament idea, but in the New Testament, the conscience, that is that sense, that thought, the knowledge that God puts in every person as to what is right and wrong. And the Bible talks to us about our conscience. You know, this is such a big deal. It says that a person can't be an elder if they can't hold to what God's Word says with a clear conscience. Uh, That's one of the things that's so significant. I think about Ezra chapter 7 verse 10 where it says that Ezra set his heart. He was personally committed to studying the law of the Lord. He wanted to know what it said. And then the second thing was to practice it. That's to actually do what he's learned and then to teach it in all of Israel. That is supposed to be the order, and the Bible tells us that nobody can be an elder if they don't know what God says, nobody can be an elder if they don't work on doing what God says, and nobody can be an elder if they don't teach what God says. You know, we've gone so wrong by taking people and putting them in positions of leadership who demonstrate with their life that they either don't know what God says or they don't care what God says. And sometimes they're happy to tell other people what they should do, but they don't actually practice it. Elders are supposed to have a clear conscience. And what that means is not that everybody's perfect, but what it means is that you're aware of what God says and you care about not violating that. So when God says, this is how you treat other people, this is what you do, this is what you stand for, that elders are able to do that with a clear conscience. (laughs) And I just want to throw this out. That's not just for elders. Elders are an example of what God wants everyone to be like. So this is for you, not just leaders. And um, how we get right when we do the wrong thing, we are convicted by the Holy Spirit. That's something that the Holy Spirit does in our life. Then we respond. And it means that it doesn't matter what it takes. We go and we say, hey, God told me I should do this and I didn't do it. I want you to know I'm sorry. We repent. We confess. We go make, we do what we can to make things right. And then we continue on doing what God tells us to do, which is what we do when we are living for the glory of God, right? Um, You know, the problem is that when it comes to a conscience, your conscience can be defiled, it can be broken, it can be shut down. Have you ever noticed in your life that if you commit, sometimes you'll commit a sin, and initially when you sin, you feel guilty. You feel like, oh man, I feel bad, I shouldn't have done that. But have you ever noticed that if you do that sin long enough, eventually it stops bothering you? I've thought about that, like where I did things 
in my life that I felt so bad about, but if I, after I did them long enough, I thought to myself, you know, that's weird. Every time I used to do this, I feel like I couldn't sleep. But now I just do it all the time. I still know it's wrong, but it doesn't really even bother me anymore. You know, that is a terribly dangerous thing when that starts to happen to a person, if that ever starts to happen with you. When you ignore your conscience, you defile it. The Bible talks about how a conscience can be seared, where it doesn't even function. And there are lots of biblical examples of that, um, where it's seared. You know, I was thinking about uh, there's a way that seems right to a man, but in the end it leads to death. You ever know somebody who's pretty pretty happy about doing the stuff that they're doing, even though it's totally destructive? Or I think about Proverbs 30, 20. Um, This is the way of an adulteress. She eats and wipes her mouth and says, I've done nothing wrong. Um, That's a dangerous thing. Just because you feel okay about something doesn't mean it's okay. We need to inform our conscience with God's Word. So our conscience is important. Verse 25, Paul's here going to give a cultural application of this principle of building others up. And he's going to say, eat whatever is sold in the meat market without raising any questions on ground of conscience. So I just want to show you here, um, this is the cultural thing that was going on there in Corinth. This is ruins uh, of the meat market. And just to show you, this is kind of how the Corinthians lived. And I hope you can read that. But if you'll notice in yellow, the second thing over, it says meat market. You want to notice what surrounds the meat market? You probably can't read it that well. Um, But we have the Temple of Jupiter, the the sanctuary of of the public lairs, the Temple of Vestian, the Temple of Augustus. Uh, We have the Temple of Apollo. Like where they sold meat was totally surrounded by these idol-worshiping places, these places of of, um, idol worship, where they worship false gods. And what Paul said last week is under no circumstances as a Christian would you walk into a temple and participate in idol worship. You would never do that. Uh, That's worshiping demons. And we think about the application of that for us. But here he's going to talk about eating meat. And he says, um, (laughs) do you know why the meat market was there? It's because they had so much meat from all of the sacrifices that was way more than anybody could eat. So you just go throw the meat over there. They would just sell it to people at a discount. And so Paul's saying in this passage Eat whatever is sold in the meat market without raising any questions on the ground of conscience. He's saying when you go to the meat market, don't say, uh, was this meat sacrificed to anybody? Just go buy it, get a discount, and eat it. It's just meat. An idol's nothing. When you sacrifice a uh, meat in an idol worship ceremony, it's not like it gets demon-possessed. And then if you eat it, you will bring that demon into yourself. It's like people who say, oh, I can't buy this house. A demon worshiper used to live there. You know, we're not worried about that kind of stuff because we serve the God who's in control of everything. But we don't participate in the worship. So Paul's just saying, hey, For the sake of conscience, don't ask. Just get a discount and enjoy the food. And here's the thing I think is cool is it says, for the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. He quotes Psalm 24. And what he's gonna say here is, everything belongs to God. That meat sacrificed in the idols, that belongs to God. The cattle on a thousand hills, that belongs to God. Everything on this earth belongs to God. You can eat, you can enjoy it, you can thank God for it. It is his, and he gave it to you. 
And then he quotes Psalm 24. And which is so cool. This is the amazing thing about Psalm 24 and also Psalm 50 is when you read it, it's amazing how this informs Paul's teaching because it talks about how God owns everything and Paul takes that Old Testament passage and he applies it to them. You want to know what the end of Psalm 24 talks about? The glory of God. What's the end of Paul's section about? The glory of God. Psalm 50 says God owns a cattle on a thousand hills. Um, And what's the end of Psalm 50 about? The glory of God. When the Apostle Paul is sharing the gospel in Athens, what does he talk about? God doesn't need you or anything you give him. He is the one who gives to all people. And then he shares the gospel. How does this passage end? It ends about that we're seeking people's salvation. It's kind of interesting when you read the Bible and you read these Old Testament quotations and you find out how full the apostles were of God's Word and how these Old Testament passages, they cite a piece of it, but then the truth from that whole passage gets expressed in their teaching. They were people who had filled their lives with the understanding of God's Word. So, one of the lessons that comes is related to the glory of God. We love people, but we don't serve people. We live for God's glory. You want to know what glorifies God? What glorifies God is our seeing who He is, our understanding of our need for Him. This verse The second point, we live to glorify God, not please people. So whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. And you know, that's the purpose statement of the church, supposed to be the purpose statement of your life, that you would live in a way, what is God living for God's glory? It's that you live in a way that gives God a good reputation, that you live in an obedient life, that you live in a way that reflects his character. You know, part of it is this is that if you don't love God with all of your heart, if you don't care about honoring Him and obeying Him, you send a message to the world that God is not valuable to me. And if God's not valuable to you, why should He be valuable to anybody else? That's why it is such a terrible testimony when people don't live for God's glory, when we idolize people's affection, when we idolize other things. It says... Those things are worth more than God. That is not what God intends us to communicate. And you know, when we're sharing the gospel, we love other people and we care about other people, but it's what's wrong with so many churches and people and their ministry is they think to themselves, how can I communicate about God without offending anybody? (laughs) You think to yourself, is that what Jesus did when he was talking about himself? Like we pointed this out, I think, last week. When Jesus had his biggest crowds, he preached his hardest messages. And we need to be people who care more about what God thinks than what other people think. Hey, um, I've talked to people who have major struggles, and I'll go sit and I'll think to myself, I really don't want to offend them. I don't want to upset them. But you want to know what the number one thing on my mind is? God, this is an opportunity that you've given me. I don't want to misrepresent you. I want to care more about pleasing you than pleasing them. And so I make sure that I I do my best to try to speak the truth in love. And so I speak the truth and I tell them things that are true. And if they get mad, 
I care more about God than them. That's glorifying God. But glorifying God is also that we love and care about people. And uh, they are not our highest priority, but we do love them. We don't want to intentionally make things offensive, but we certainly will never change God's message to make somebody help, help, to make somebody not offended. And so we live an obedient life and we, we demonstrate personally that we love God more than anyone else. And then the third thing is this, that we see we live for the glory of God. The third thing is this, that we please others from love, not out of idolatry. You ever known somebody that's a people pleaser? Have you ever felt like you were a people pleaser? Where we need other people to say, hey, you're great, I like you, you did a good job. So when I was early in ministry, this was like a big thing in my life that I was trying to address and deal with. So I never complimented anybody. And I never thanked anybody. Do you know why? Well, I just thought to myself, I don't do anything I do for thanks. People would say, hey, how can we encourage you? How can we say thank you to you? And I just said, yeah, don't thank me. I don't care if anybody ever says thank you for anything. I don't care if anybody appreciates me. I don't need that. I don't want it because I care about what God thinks of me, not people. I am living my life and working for the Lord, not for people. And so everybody would say, oh, thanks, Raj. We appreciate this. And I just kind of, okay, great, and just kind of ignored it. And or the other thing I would do is take the, take the compliment away. Hey, the Lord really blessed me through what you did or your ministry. And I would say, yeah, you know, I have a lot of problems and I do this wrong and that wrong. And so I did that. One time this guy pulls me to the side, an older, more mature man, and he says, hey, Roger, when somebody compliments you, just say thank you. Like that's it, just say thanks. Like don't, un, uh, you know, don't reverse their compliment. And, um, and I started to realize that there's nothing wrong with thanking people and appreciating them. And the truth is it is all of our jobs to do what we do for the Lord and to be glad. If somebody compliments us, encourages us, we should be thankful for that. But we don't ever do it for that. Here's the thing, when you think that you need people, I need my boss, he has to like me because he has something I need. Or I need a bunch of people to come alongside me and telling, tell me I'm doing a good job because I need people to like me and I need people on my side. That is idolatry. Do you know who needs to be appreciative of you? Somebody who needs to think well of you? One person, that's God. If God is pleased with us, it doesn't matter if nobody else is. Um, do you know who, who the help you need? You don't need your boss's help. He didn't decide whether or not you get a raise. You don't need your coworkers to like you so that you can have their help. You need one person's help. Do you know who that is? God. You know those passages in Scripture that say, if God is for us, who can be against us? Have you ever read in the Bible where everybody was against somebody, but when God was on their side, they were blessed, cared for, taken care of? And that's not to say that we don't have a personal responsibility to stand for what's right, to address sin, to defend people who need to be defended, uh, who should be defended. We all have a responsibility to do that. We don't shrink away and say, I don't want anybody mad at me. So I'm just gonna let somebody else take all the hits. We don't do that. Um, that's idolatry. We stand for what's right, we speak the truth, 
But the, but the bottom line is we need no one. God intends that we love people without needing them. Look at the, how this passage closes. And we'll close here. 1 Corinthians 10.32 says, Give no offense to Jews or Greeks or to the church of God. So we are to please people, not be people pleasers, but we need to care more about other people than ourselves. And he lists the Jews, the Greeks, or the church. We're mindful of these things. Just as I try to please everyone in everything, I do. Not seeking my own advantage. See, that's idolatry. When you please people for your own advantage, that's idolatry. But when you please people, not for your advantage, but for their advantage, that they may be saved. We are pursuing the salvation of the people around us, and there's no more powerful way than to do that by living our lives for the glory of God, which means we love people, but we don't need them. The greatest uh, love and passion in our life is the Lord, and nothing makes us happier than serving Him and being faithful to Him. And I just want to tell you guys, if we think about this passage and if we live this way, it will transform our church. People will run here from everywhere. People will run here from your neighborhood because they'll just say, man, what I see in their life, I want that. I want to know this God that is such an incredible treasure to them. It will transform your marriage. When you do things in your marriage, not for yourself, but for God's glory, when you love your spouse, not because they're treating you right, but because they're made in God's image. It will transform your relationships with your kids. And by the way, as a parent, the most important thing we train our kids and teach them is to value and love and live for the glory of God. And so for us, man, let's take this. You know, <laughs> Paul taught them this in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, and he's back to it in 10. And it's because when he looks at this church with all these problems, this is what fixes that. And so for all of us, let's prioritize that. This um, do all things for the glory of God, that is a big theme throughout Scripture. Let me pray for us. God, thank you for giving us your word. God, I pray that you would help us to love you with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Lord, that you would be our greatest love, our greatest treasure, that we would look to you for help, that we wouldn't think we needed other people, that we would know that we need you. God, I pray that you would help us to stand up for what is right and to defend people when it's right and to honor and love you with all of our life and to resist sin. And God, that we would be a people that everybody sees, that we would put your attributes on display and that people would want what we have. God, I thank you for your grace, your forgiveness, your kindness, for the work of Christ, for transforming our hearts, for giving us the Holy Spirit to help us live for your glory. And so, Lord, we ask all these things in your name. Amen.